This is a Sunday message from New Community Church in London. To discover more about New Community, visit newcom.church. We're carrying on our series, Knowing Jesus. If you've got a Bible, let's get serious for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, stick your finger in that. How are you feeling this morning? So, oh, yeah. Do you even know how to answer that question? <laughs> Some of us. I'll move on to an easier question. Easier in the sense that there's a correct and an incorrect answer. This is a little bit of a quiz. What is the shortest verse in the New Testament? Oh, Jesus wept. Look at us thinking we're really cool and smart. You're not that smart, though, because that's true in English, but it's not true in Greek. Ah! So a bit of a trick question there, wasn't it? Jesus wept, John 11.35, is indeed the shortest verse in, uh, in English. But in Greek, it's 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. Because that only has 14 words, 14 words, 14 letters in Greek. And Jesus wept, unbelievably, has 16 letters in Greek. So a bit of a trick question. But here's the point I'm telling you. Is weeping and rejoicing and kind of opposite ends of the spectrum uh, in terms of human emotions and the Bible, like life, is absolutely full of those things and everything in between. And so, back to the question, how are you feeling? In a room this size, we'll have people at that end and that end and people in between. And a deeper question really for us to think about is, how do you feel about the way you feel? Not just how do you feel, how do you feel about the way you feel? Because we're human beings, right? And emotions, therefore, play a huge part in our lives, and yet we probably don't think about them anywhere near enough. Or at very least, we don't think about them anywhere near biblically enough. A guy called Augustine, who was a 5th century African theologian, probably, to be honest with you, the most influential person on church history outside of the Apostle Paul, who wrote a whole load of the New Testament. He said, our emotions often function like smoke from a fire. They can indicate what's going on in our hearts before we can articulate it. And the Bible addresses the topic of emotions an awful lot. And the aim of the Bible's teaching on emotions isn't to um, suppress them. Emotions are not bad. So often, particularly as Christians, I think, we, we just don't seem to know what to do with our emotions. We know that we're supposed to experience the good emotions, but either we don't or we do, and then we feel guilty about them because we're in a context where there are other, we're rejoicing, there are other people weeping. You think, can I really be that happy while they're that miserable? I don't feel awkward about this. Or worse, perhaps, we experience the, what we might describe as the negative emotions, and uh, we kind of view it as some sort of spiritual failure, Proof that we don't perhaps trust God enough or love God enough or know God enough or worse, God doesn't love us. And I've seen it so many times, sadly, in church life, so many times that people start to experience and start to feel so-called negative emotions and then they back off. Back off from church life, back off from community life, back off from friendships, kind of feel like it's better for me to not be here and it's better for everyone else as well for me to not be here because I'm not doing so, I don't want to drag it all down. And I, no, and, but... Listen, it is never better to back off. It's always a moment to press in. For in a true Christian community, there is both rejoicing and weeping happening simultaneously at the same time, very often within the same life. And that's okay. The Bible doesn't teach us to suppress our emotions or even to manage them. They are not bad. 
but nor are they ultimate either. Some of us are people naturally who are swept away by our emotions. We're led by them. We just cannot not respond in line with how we feel. doesn't matter what we know to be true. I feel this, so I have to react like that. In some kind of false way of thinking, I'm not being true to myself if I don't respond how my emotions lead me. Some of us feel trapped by our emotions. It's like they're crippled by them. We feel something. Emotions are strange, aren't they? They just appear out of nowhere sometimes, just course through our body and cause things that we can't really control. And we're sort of crippled by them. Some of us are fearful of our emotions. Don't want to go there, shut the door. Feeling really very, very uncomfortable right now that we're talking about this. But emotions are not bad. They're not ultimate either. They're not our master. They're not the enemy. They are a gift. And we need to learn to read them accurately and to express them honestly. But in doing that, it's really rather important to recognize that we are all still in the flesh. None of us are perfect. We still all get things wrong. We still all sin. We all have a bias towards self and sin. And that's important because emotions are supposed to move us. Our emotions are supposed to move us, but they're supposed to move us towards God in love and obedience, not towards sin and self. And so we need to learn how to be properly emotional, which means we need to allow the gospel to reshape our emotions completely in order that we might become more fully human. That's the whole smoke from the fire stuff. You, when you smell smoke or see smoke, you don't just ignore it. That'd be all right. You don't waft it away, problem dealt with, I can't see it anymore. You work out what's on fire and you react accordingly. Why am I feeling this? Where's it coming from? And very importantly now, how am I now reacting? Is this pushing me towards God and love and things that are good for me? Or is it pushing me towards sin and self and things which ultimately might feel good but not good for me? Become aware of it and then I act accordingly. Let's just back up for a moment. Why on earth are we talking about emotions? We're in a Knowing Jesus series. Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's have a look at it. This tells us that right before we were, it was because, um, tells us before we were Christians, it was like we had these, this veil over our heads, so our faces over our, our hearts, that we were unable to see God. We were unable to know God. And then verse 14 says, through Christ, this veil is taken away. So now we can see God, we can know God, we can be changed to become like him. Verse 16 says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom to be who we truly are, freedom to be who God has truly made us to be, who Christ has remade us to be. Verse 18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's the journey all of us are on, right? We didn't know Jesus at all. Jesus broke into his life, all work of grace. He rescued us, he saved us, he blessed us in the heavenly realms. Now we know Jesus and now we are being changed to be like Jesus. That's the journey we're all on. It's a process. It's a journey. And Jesus perfectly represents God. He said so himself. John 14 verse 9. He said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And Jesus was truly emotional, wasn't he? Jesus leads the way in showing us what the full range of emotions look like lived out 
in the flesh. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And Jesus, absolutely perfect Jesus, never got anything wrong Jesus, not just some throwaway line. Just consider that for a moment. Without sin, he never sinned. He never got anything wrong. He was completely perfect in all his thoughts, in all his actions, in all his deeds, in everything. Means he was completely perfect in his emotions too and how he felt and how he responded and how he acted. Wow. And what he did, what he said, how he acted, shows us what God's like. Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. And so think it through logically. It's exactly the same thing is true about his emotions too. What he felt and how he reacted are not just a model to us. They reveal something of the character of God. When we see the emotional Jesus, we are seeing the heart of God, what he is like. And so we, made in the image of God, each one of us, if we're a Christian here today, you have been remade in Christ Jesus. And you have been added into his family, added into his body. You are now being transformed to be like him. One day we will be like him perfectly. We'll stand face to face in his presence, totally transformed. But now as we're on this journey, we need to align our emotional lives with him too as we image him, as we represent him, as we display him to the world, as we show the world what Jesus and what God therefore is truly like. So I want to just focus in our, if we've got enough time, on five emotions of Jesus that we need to learn to cultivate as we seek to be like him. And the first is compassion. First emotion is compassion. The Bible tells us in multiple places that Jesus felt compassion. And biblical compassion is, is more than like kindness or sympathy towards other people. The Greek word for compassion is, is kind of like, literally like this deep, weird sensation in your, in your guts. It's like the word is... It's translated as moved in the bowels, right? Which we kind of know is a metaphorical thing. It's a bit like our phrase, it's gut-wrenching. It's not literally wrenching your guts. That would be incredibly painful. But gut-wrenching or heartbreaking. Again, it's not, we understand what that phrase means. A number of years ago, we used to sing that song, didn't we? Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. Jesus' gut-wrenching, heartbreaking, movement in the bowels, compassion was for people who were in need physically. We see it in Mark 1, had compassion for a leper. We see it in Matthew 20, he had compassion for two blind men. We see it in Mark 8 for the crowds. He had compassion because they were starving for bread. They were hungry. He had compassion for them. We also see as well as compassion for those in physical needs, those with emotional needs. Luke 7, he has compassion for a widow who's standing by the coffin of her only son. His heart broke for that person. We also see he has compassion for those in spiritual need too. His heart broke when he saw people, Matthew 9, who were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Here's the thing we see with Jesus. He cared for the whole person, not just one aspect of us. It's not like he went, oh, I'm, just a, I'm a physical needs kind of guy. Like, I don't do emotions. Don't do the emotional needs stuff. And someone else can take care of the spiritual stuff. I'll just feed people. I'm on that. But nor can he just go, I, I just care about the spiritual things. He, you're hungry, oh, well, let me eat cake. Like, it'll be fine. No, he cares for the whole person, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And this is the really key thing for us in this thing, is that Jesus' compassion for people 
wasn't just because he was a good guy. It flowed out of his intimacy with the Father. The more time that Jesus spent with the Father, the more compassion he displayed towards others. Right before he sees the leper and feels compassion, we're told in Mark 1, he withdrew himself to a lonely place and prayed, spent time with the Father. Another time, right before he saw the crowds and had compassion, it was, we're told again, he withdrew to a lonely place by himself, alone with the Father, and then subsequently he had compassion on people. And it's in these times alone with God that emotional energy, if you like, is renewed and compassion is summoned. You try and be compassionate towards people properly and try and do it only in your own strength, well, it's going to quickly wear out. Or your heart will become hardened or you'll become frustrated with people because people are hard work. It is draining trying to help people and their emotional needs if you are trying to do it in your own strength. It's going to... It's going to rob you of all the strength that you have. And you're going to quickly become weary and give up or get hardened or cynical or whatever else it is. We need to keep renewing our compassion to keep it real and to keep it active. Otherwise, it's just works that will be burnt up like straw. And the key to that, spending time with the Father just as Jesus did. Because that's where the emotion of compassion is summoned. But that emotion doesn't just stay there. Emotions are meant to move us. They're meant to change us. They're meant to propel us somewhere. And the emotion of compassion is not passive. Oh, that's a shame. It's active. It's out of these times with the Father that Jesus' compassion was translated from, from feelings to action. He created bread. He did something. He restored sight to the blind. He did something. He cleansed lepers. He did something. He raised a dead widow's son. He did something. It was because of his great love for people that was born out of his great love for the Father. He loved God. Therefore, he loved people. And it was out of that that he took seriously his command to love his neighbor. He actively perceived the sufferings of others, and he sought to relieve them. He didn't just react to those who desired mercy. Oh, there's somebody, oh yeah, I can do something about that. I feel a bit, no, no, he actively pursued opportunities to be merciful and show compassion to others. And as his hands and as his feet in this world, we are called to do the same. You see, as believers, we're not just reactionary people who simply try and do the right thing when it presents itself. Like, I'll just live my life and if there's an opportunity, then of course I'm not gonna ignore somebody. No, 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 we seek to be merciful. We seek to show compassion. It's, Lord, break our hearts for what breaks yours is translated, therefore, into how we live. And do you know what? We benefit as we do. What's Jesus saying in Matthew 5? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Cultivating compassion starts with cultivating time with Jesus. How compassionate are we? Stems from how much time we spend with the Lord. Second um, emotion, anger. Anger, good or bad? Well, it depends, doesn't it? Like, obviously, it's bad sometimes. Scripture's quite clear on that. James 1.20, the anger of man does not produce righteousness. But some anger's good, right? I mean, Jesus got angry, and he was perfect. Mark 3.5, he looked around at them, the Pharisees, legalistic religious leaders, he looked at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart. That's righteous anger. 
Now, anger is in some ways a bit more complex than it seems. See, anger doesn't come out of any, nowhere. Actually, anger is not an original emotion. Anger is a response we have to whatever endangers something we love. So someone hurts someone we love and we get angry about it. It's why anyone can be angry because being angry is easy. If you love something or someone, you have the potential to be angry. The problem comes, of course, is that we're not as angry about the things we should be and we're too often angry about the things that we shouldn't be. And the problem? Well, truthfully, it's because we love ourselves too much and our neighbor too little. Don't forget, biblically, our neighbor at times will likely include our enemies, people we don't like, we don't want to like, we don't want to have anything to do with them. It's why we get angry when someone doesn't treat us right and totally ignore all the biblical commands about turning the other cheek and forgiving people. We get angry about that, but we don't get angry enough when we read of genuine injustice and evil wrongdoing that happens to someone else on the other side of the world. Get more angry about someone cutting me up on the road than how a certain group of Muslims are treated in China. Why? Because I love myself more than I love my neighbor at times. So what do we do when we get angry in a way that's not righteous anger? Because that's back to the whole smoke and fire thing, right? Why am I angry? Well, the first thing we've got to do is analyze why are we angry? We've got to understand its source. It's got to, there's a moment where we kind of like stop, if you like, and say, what am I loving so much right now that I'm feeling angry? Now, I appreciate in the moment where you're feeling angry, that's probably the last thing you want to do, but it's absolutely the thing you know how to do. Why, what am, why am I feeling like this now? Where, where is the source, the fire? What am I loving too much right now in this moment? And the answer, the reason why I don't like asking that question is because it's usually us. <laughs> it's usually ourselves. It's our ego, our pride, our self-needs, our self-wants, our self-esteem, whatever it might be. It's usually us. And having asked that question, we answer that and we, we begin to feel sorrow for our sin. And godly sorrow grieves us into repentance. We turn to Jesus. We identify the, the root problem, the sin, that we get moved we repent of it and we turn then, reminding ourselves of the gospel and reminding ourselves of the love of Jesus because we turn to him and we're forgiven. When we get things wrong by loving the wrong things, the answer is to love the right things. We can't, truthfully, we can't just tell ourselves to do that, can we? That's why so many of us struggle with sin. We're like, we do it and we're like, oh, you idiot. Why'd you do that? Stop it, you horrible sinner. And we kind of shout at ourselves and we get really frustrated with ourselves and we get really annoyed with ourselves. And sometimes it extends beyond that and we do all sorts of essentially self-harm, whether it's just emotionally or otherwise. You think, why'd you keep doing that? And it doesn't really work, does it? Don't change anything. And more to the point, it's completely unlike Jesus in every respect. He didn't do that, did he? People caught in sin and mess and brokenness, he didn't shout at them and say, stop it, you're doing. He showed love and grace and compassion and mercy and said, hey, now out of that gun, sin no more. We need help. 
Well, you heard it in our worship. Thankfully, there's a helper. We're strengthened by the Spirit to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. When our eyes are open to see and Savior, the wonder of the cross, the beauty of Jesus, the incredible grace, we're overcome by it, and then we're led to love him more than anything else. And so we increasingly care about the things that matter and grow in not becoming angry when we shouldn't be. We need to deal with anger that doesn't produce righteousness. But we also need to get a little bit more angry, right? In a righteous sense. After all, Jesus got angry. Why? Because he had deep love for people. Compassion moved Jesus to anger. And the Bible tells us that Jesus always had the mind of God. He thought God's thoughts. And so the things that caused God anger inevitably provoked righteous anger in Jesus. And so they must in us too. You know, not expressing anger in the presence of injustice is not a sign of godliness. It's a sign of moral weakness. We need to look at Jesus more. And the more you look at Jesus, the more angry you'll be. Righteously angry about the things you should be. And just like compassion, you will be moved to do something about it. You see injustice and you'll get angry at it. And so we commit ourselves to living lives of justice in our sphere can't do everything about everything, but we can do what we can do about the things that we can do. And so I am not going to live a life of injustice myself. I'm going to live it wherever I can in every context. We get angry at sin, and so we commit ourselves to living compassionate lives of holiness. Start with ourselves. Commit ourselves to living lives of holiness. We extend grace to others who are caught up in sin. We get angry or angry at death, and so we proclaim a gospel of life. And we snatch people out of the fire of hell. Like, let's be honest, that's evangelism, right? Straight there. Nothing more. I know we don't like mention it much, but nothing more than that is because we genuinely love people and don't want to see them burn. So we say, I'm, we don't want them to die the death of eternity. And so we snatch them out of the fire of hell and we preach life because we're angry at death. The more you love Jesus, the more you know Jesus, the more you actually care. Not about my self-needs and my self-comfort and what suits me, but about the fact that every single week, hundreds of thousands of people die without Jesus. And we go, do you know what? That's not okay. It's not okay. It's why we're bothered about communities. It's why we're bothered about mission. It's why we're bothered about reaching the lost. Because it's not okay. Death robs. It's a cheat. It's not natural. And we have a gospel of life that we carry and we live. The sting of death is removed for those who are in Christ. Hallelujah. Praise God. Eternal life will swallow us up for all time. Hallelujah. Praise God. And stuff all those who are not experiencing it. Said no Christian ever. We give ourselves to the things because we're angry at the things that God is. Hates death, so he brings life. We are carriers of life in this mortal body. And we all go, some of it, like, if you're anything like me, you're rubbish at evangelism, right? Don't, don't be, <laughs> I hate death, so I want to proclaim life and I want to grow and I want to be better. And actually, that's why I want to be in community with others. Because fishing is not an individual sport, it's a team event. I'll make you fishers of men. It's not one person with his rod. It's a whole community event, everybody involved, everybody participating. I just, all my best evangelism stories are just piggybacking in on somebody else. Anger at death, so we proclaim life. Third emotion, grief. 
Jesus wept. John 11.35, he wept. The context of him weeping is his friend Lazarus had just died. It says in verse 36, see, talking of Jesus, see how he loved him. When Jesus saw Mary weeping, it says in verse 33, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. When he stopped at the tomb of his friend with Lazarus inside, verse 38, it says he was deeply moved again. He wept and actually he didn't just wept, he wailed and he groaned and he shouted at death. Jesus experienced sorrow and grief. There's some wonderfully comforting implications of Jesus experiencing grief, of course. First is this, in contrast to much of our culture, we see in Jesus how grief is a completely healthy emotion. We can grieve. It's okay to cry. Like blokes particularly, I mean, it's not manly to cry. You try and tell Jesus, the one who says in 2 Thessalonians, by the breath of his mouth, he can kill his enemies. I mean, like by the breath of his mouth, he can kill his enemies. I'm just putting it out there. You don't get much tougher than that. You try to tell that one that it's not, not manly to cry, that grief and sorrow is not okay. The emotionally healthy person grieves over loss, big and small. But we don't grieve as those without any hope. We feel grief, it's smoke from the fire. We don't ignore it, we don't abandon faith, walk away, well, no, we bring that emotion, we bring that grief to Jesus and we allow him to reshape it and to speak to our deepest hurts so that we gain true hope and the comfort, the true comfort that our souls yearn for. Because this is the second implication of Jesus weeping and feeling grief is that no matter how hard life gets, no matter how dark it feels, Jesus knows. He's experienced it himself. He experienced grief in other ways too. And his friend Judas betrayed him. Even then he didn't withdraw. He didn't back off. The Gospels portray Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as the one who is crushed by a heavy load of grief. And he doesn't hide it. He doesn't suppress it. He doesn't ignore it. He literally tells his friends, I am deeply grieved even to death. He literally says that to his disciples. And even though he begged them to stay awake, they couldn't handle his sorrow, and so they slept, and they left Jesus alone. And it says in Mark 14, 33, that he was terror-stricken and in terrible anguish as Jesus agonized over the awful choice to endure or to escape the cross. And as he wrestled in prayer, we're told that he was drenched in his own sweat, which ran like blood to the ground. No matter how bad, how dark your circumstance or your situation, he knows he's been there. We heard it earlier in worship, he's not unable to sympathize. See, no matter how dark it gets, The Bible not only gives you a voice, Psalm 88, it's so bad, it's so bad in Psalm 88 that the psalmist ends with, darkness is my only friend. That's how bad it is in that psalmist situation. We're not told what. It's so bad, he says, darkness is my only friend. 
But here's the implication for us because we live this side of the cross. Because on the cross, he, Jesus, endured the absolute darkness of separation from the Father. He endured the wrath of God poured out. He endured the weight of every sin put upon him. So that for us, even though our feelings say we're alone, we take them to God in honesty And we allow the gospel to reshape us and change it because he truly went into darkness. He truly was alone. So no matter how bad, no matter how dark it might feel, we will never truly be alone because he went there for us. He is with you. He is for you. And he knows. Feelings are the fruit of faith, not the source of it. We don't believe because we feel feel this so it must be true but because we believe we feel and we feel the full range of emotions and we don't feel our way into faith we believe our way into feelings there is a difference then the third thing just on grief finally is Jesus's familiarity with grief should just cause us to pause for a moment too often we hear versions of the gospel that offer quick fixes easy solutions and suffering-free discipleship, come to Jesus and all your problems go away, is so far removed from the truth of the gospel, it's not true. Absolute rubbish. There is no promise of a no-pain life if you follow Jesus. And so don't be surprised when it comes. And truthfully, the older you get, the more you realize just how rubbish a lot of life is, don't you? I mean, it is. Let's be honest. Like, when you're 23 and know everything, it's amazing. I mean, it's probably even better when you're 15 and know everything. I can say that when they're out of the room. But just life, it can be hard and tough. You shouldn't be surprised. We need the reminder that the man who knew God most intimately and fulfilled his will most completely, who never did anything wrong, he was described as the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, 4, surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. If he does, knows, why would we be immune from it? But we're not alone in it. He is with us. He is for us. He will see us through. So we go really quickly from weeping, number four, to rejoicing joy. Hey, what a gear change. No, what a life. That's Christian life. Amen. Weeping and rejoicing. They go side by side. (laughs) How mad's that? The man of sorrows was a man of joy too. He parted, he laughed, he knew joy. But when, uh, this is key bit, Luke 10, he sends out the 72. They do some awesome stuff. They do all these incredible things in Jesus' name. They come back celebrating. Look what we did. They did that and that was amazing. And he says, well, that's great. Let's party. But don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. Earthly things can be awesome. So enjoy them. Like, if you have the privilege of, like, experiencing nice stuff in this life, blooming enjoy it. I feel really bad about the fact that God's blessed me with all this stuff. Don't! Enjoy it! But don't rejoice in it. You can enjoy it. Rejoice in the fact your name is written in the book of life. Number five, fifth one, fifth motion, is the one that underpins all the rest, is love. See, underpinning, guiding, permeating, empowering, every single one of these emotions is love. He felt compassion. He was angry. He was grieved. He rejoiced because he loved. Love is an unshakable commitment of the will. 
Let me say that again. Love is an unshakable commitment of the will. I promise to love my wife till death do us part. More accurately, she promised to love me till death do us part. And some days I do her head in. (laughs) But love is an unshakable commitment of the will. That's not, yeah. Love transcends feelings, right? It keeps going whether feelings falter or feelings vanish. I used to be enthusiastic about the mission and the church, but I don't feel it anymore. You love Jesus. You love his bride. You love his mission. You love people. Transcends those feelings. But love also involves and expresses emotions. Love is not emotionless. Jesus loved with a strong desire. And here's the thing. His love always resulted in action. Ultimately, his love led him to suffer and die. And he said, greater love has no one than this. The one may lay down his life for his friends. And he says to his friends, that's you and I, his disciples, live up to that standard of love. This is my commandment, he says, that you love one another just as I've loved you. And a couple of verses later, he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And to live by that standard of love requires more than emotions. It calls for total commitment. Is it Shard's word at the end? Total commitment to give up your life for someone else and to trust in the power of God to keep that commitment. But loving as Jesus loves also includes emotions. Intense, diverse, deep emotions. His kind of love will arouse emotions of compassion and anger and grief and joy. And loving like that is really risky. Like truthfully, it leaves us open. And many people will think it's safer to not love like Jesus did. But those who follow Jesus cannot do anything but love in that way. C.S. Lewis, the great theologian of Narnia, he said this, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Boom! If we just want to know about Jesus, then we just need to know that he experienced the full range of emotions. But if we want to know Jesus, to be like him, then we must be captivated by him and the intensity with which he lived, he felt and lived his emotions in obedience to and for the absolute glory of God. And to love like that is risky. It causes you to leave yourself potentially open to hurt. But to love like that, we must. For the glory of God and the sake of a watching world. In knowing Jesus, we are not to be merely interested in his behaviors. We are to be unbound by his spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So that his life becomes our life. His emotions, our emotions in order that we may be transformed ever more into his likeness with their ever-increasing glory and great joy. Let's pray.